Okay, church, if you will turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. Verses 39 through 52 today. Luke 2, 39 through 52. Says this. When they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own city of Nazareth. The child continued to grow and become strong, increasing in wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he became twelve, they went up there according to the custom of the feast. And as they were returning, after spending the full number of days, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. But his parents were unaware of it, but supposed him to be in the caravan. And went a day's journey, and they began looking for him among their relatives and acquaintances. When they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem looking for him. Then after three days they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. When they saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us this way? Behold, your father and I have been anxiously looking for you. And he said to them, Why is it that you were looking for me? Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand the statement which he had made to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth. And he continued to be he continued in subjection to them, and his mother treasured all these things in her heart, and Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature, and in favor with God and men. Heavenly Father. Lord, I just come to you once again and and just ask for your help, the assistance of your Holy Spirit, Lord. Please protect me from error today. Lord, please, um, Lord, be glorified today. May Christ be glorified today. May your sheep be fed, Lord. May may they be nourished. Father, I just pray that you would fill me with your Spirit, God, that your Spirit would go forth with power, uh, that you would bring conviction where conviction is needed, Lord. Comfort where comfort is needed. God, that your will would be done in our lives and that Jesus Christ would be glorified. We ask it in His name. Amen. Alright guys, so this is a rather large section of Scripture. So we'll go through it as quickly as we can. Uh, but just to, to kind of catch back up where we're at real quick, we are finishing chapter 2 today, going through Luke. Um, really, guys, if you remember the last two weeks, we've dealt with two very godly individuals, Simeon and Anna. And really, it was a picture of uh, what, what genuine saving faith looked like. Talked about what it looks like to be a true follower of Christ when we looked at Simeon's life and Anna's. Somebody who has the reality of the presence of the Holy Spirit within them. We saw that in Simeon's life. Um, somebody who anticipates the coming of Christ. I mean, if you're a Christian, you should be anticipating the, the coming of Christ, have a desire for Christ's return, for the appearance of Christ. Uh, They were both very thankful for Christ that we saw, praising God the Most High for for His Messiah, finally coming. So these were godly people. Uh, Last week we talked about Anna's life, that that she was at the temple continually. And we just looked at how, what a privilege it is to be in the house of the Lord with brothers and sisters. And that's, that's really one of the evidence of being a Christian. All of these are. Being filled with the Spirit, being led by the Spirit, having a heart that's thankful for all things, but especially Christ. Uh, being Having a desire to be with our brothers and sisters. Just that, 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 these evidences of the new life of Christ. Having our hearts changed and we go from loving the things of the world to loving the things of God. And so we looked at that last week, guys. And really it brings us into uh, the close of this, of this chapter 2. And verse 39 is, is really, as I looked at this verse, it's kind of a, just a transitional verse that's sitting there before you close out the, the chapter. And it, and it says this in verse 39. It says, When they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own city of Nazareth. Now that first phrase, it says, when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, that's what we talked about, I believe, three weeks ago in verses 21 and 24. That's what that's describing. The purification of Mary. This is after Christ was born. The purification of Mary, the, the, the presentation of, of Christ, of her firstborn in the temple, and with all the sacrifices and the ceremonies that we discussed on that day. That's what this is talking about. When, 
when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, it says they returned to Galilee to their own city of Nazareth. And so before we move on and really get into the text, I just want to point out that, that yes, they did return to Galilee, obviously, they did to their own city of Nazareth because it says so in the text, but they did not do so immediately. This is where really you get a harmony of the Gospels. Something Luke did not cover here in this text that you'd have to read Matthew chapter 2 to kind of fill in the blanks. We're not going to do that. But in Matthew chapter 2, guys, we're going to see that, or if you read that, they probably returned to Bethlehem before, and that is where they were visited by the, by the, by the wise men from the east. You see that in Matthew 2. And, and then heeded the warning. If you remember Herod, Herod heard there was a king of the Jews. And so the, the wise men went to find this child to worship him in Bethlehem. And then through that whole encounter, and then Jer- uh, Joseph received word from the angel in a dream, warning them about Herod. He was going to kill. Going to, he wanted to destroy the child. Going to kill all the the young boys, two years old and under. And so he said that the angel told told Joseph to flee to Egypt. And so he did so. And then after Herod died, the angel then appeared again in a dream and instructed Joseph to go back to Israel to the regions of Galilee and Nazareth. So they did end up back in Nazareth, but not immediately. That's just a little bit of a little bit of a fill in the blank there that for whatever reason Luke didn't cover. If the Holy Spirit didn't inspire him to cover it, then he didn't inspire him to cover it, but Matthew did. So that's just a little bit of way of background. And uh, we'll we'll go from verse 40 to 52 looking at at the Messiah here as being truly God and truly man. If you have your if you have your bulletin, your outline on the back, we'll have four points today that we're going to see. This is the only section in Scripture where we see Jesus as the boy here. So that's why I emphasize the boy. The boy's growth, first of all. The boy's priority. The boy's identity. And the boy's humility. Truly God and truly man. Something we need to be reminded of. I, want to, I read a paragraph earlier out of our doctrinal statement, our 116 doctrinal statement. Now I want to read a short paragraph out of the London Baptist Confession. Chapter eight, verse. Uh, chapter eight, paragraph two. Under Christ, the Mediator. Okay, this is, because this is really applicable to our our message today. It says this: the Son of God, the second person of the Holy Trinity, is truly and eternally God. Okay, can I hear amen? amen? Amen. All right. He is the brightness of the Father's glory, the same in substance and equal with Him. He made the world and sustains and governs everything He has made. When the fullness of time came, he, he, he took upon Himself human nature with all the essential properties and common weaknesses. I want you to... I'm, I'm emphasizing that phrase here. Common weaknesses of it. But without sin. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary. The Holy Spirit came down upon her and the power of the Most High overshadowed her. We just read about that a few weeks ago in Luke. Thus he was born of a woman from the tribe of Judah, a descendant of Abraham and David in fulfillment of the Scriptures, again in Luke. Two whole, perfect, and distinct natures were inseparably joined together in one person without converting one into the other or mixing them together. You see, there were many heresies throughout the church age that they, they were just heretical. Like these were, they were a mixture of some kind. No, they're two separate natures. He's fully human, fully, fully God. We need to remember that. Um, so they, they, uh, they were not mixed together to, to produce a different or blended nature. This person is truly God and truly man. Yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and humanity. Amen, Rocky? I could hear you saying amen. Amen. So, it's, so we're just going to be reminded of the, to have a proper standing of the man Jesus today. We need to have a proper understanding of who it is because it matters. It matters. So the first thing we're going to look at is the boy's growth in verse 40. The boy's growth. It says the child continued to grow and become strong, increasing in wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. He grew and became strong. I really like the way that the New King James words it. 
It says he became strong in spirit. And so, in other words, he, he became strong in spirit. It says he, he, he was increasing in wisdom. In other words, guys, he's becoming strong. He's growing in his body and in his mind, you could say. Okay? The, the body aspect. I think, I think we get that. I think that's easy to see. Right? He was born. He was a baby. He was a baby like we were all babies. We've, those of us who have raised kids, we've been around babies, right? All babies have needs. Shiloh and Rachel will soon see. Justin and Kelsey, right? You know the needs a baby has. They're very needy. But they, go, they grow. That's, we, we understand that. They go from not being able to roll over to rolling over. They go from rolling over to then sitting, sitting up. They have their first words. I wonder, as I was writing that, I wonder what his first words were. <laughs> but the baby has the first words like little Owen back in Alabama. His first words were bottle. That's right. He's a chunky little guy. But they grow, right? We get this physically from a, from a from a from an infant to a toddler to a boy and everything that goes with it. All the challenges that go with it to puberty to a, to an adult and all through. Jesus went through all these stages. He was tired. He was hungry. He had a real body. It's the point we understand that. That he grew physically. He had a real body like ours, and he really did die on the cross. He really did die on the cross, beloved. He wasn't like the Gnostics that we talked about in Equipping Hour a few weeks ago, right? They said, no, he was just spirit. That physical matter is evil, so he didn't really have a body. No, he really did have a body. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. Matter of fact, when we, when we take the Lord's Supper, what are we remembering? The broken body. Of Christ, His blood that shed from His body. And so, you know, speaking of the Gnostics, guys, because this is the only place in the Scriptures where we, where we see a, 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 just a glimpse of his, of his childhood. This is all it says. So this is all we have revealed to us. So we don't need to wonder, oh, well, you know, because you hear people like that and they're always wanting more than what the Bible says. This is all we have. You know, there was a early... Uh, apocryphal Gospels written by the second century Gnostics that we've been talking about. And just silly stuff like this. They have in there that Jesus was playing in the mud and making clay birds and then turning them into real birds so that that we'd have a toy to play with. Just adding to the Word of God. There's no sense to, to develop such fantasies. This is all we have of His childhood. We need to be content with that. This is all God wanted us to know. But He was growing. The child continued to grow and become strong. And so I think we understand that he grew physically, obviously. But not just his body, beloved, but his, but his spirit. Okay? His spirit. His, his soul. In other words, he grew not just physically. He became strong just not, not just physically, but mentally. You ever thought about that, guys? He actually had to grow mentally. Because he was a man. Intellectually. Sometimes we think that he always knew all things when he was a man, and he did not. He set some of the privileges of his deity aside, and God the Father allowed him to use them at certain times. But he was a real man, guys. A real man. Outer growth, inner growth. His soul, his mind, however you want to say it, inwardly, he was subject to ignorance. He had to learn things because he was a real man. Okay? But remember, all without sin. Okay? He, didn't, he didn't have sin. And so remember the phrase that I emphasize in the confession, these common weaknesses. That's what it's talking about. He had these common weaknesses of being a man. Right? Not just of the body. Right? He went from crawling to walking. He had weaknesses in his body. He couldn't walk until he developed it. But also mentally, intellectually, in his understanding. In his habits, in his humanness, it all needed growth. Beloved, here's the thing to remember. All of our weaknesses, okay, not, not, not our sin, but all of our weaknesses from being a human, they were impressed upon us as part of our fallenness. Okay? And we can't avoid them. But he subjected himself voluntarily. We have to remember who he was. The God of all creation, <laughs> the God of glory came to this earth. That's what it means in Ephesians 2. 
7 and 8 where it says He emptied Himself. The Son of God. God the Son emptied Himself. Taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man. He humbled Himself. These are many of the ways that He, he humbled Himself. A guy by the name of R. Kent Hughes says it really good. He was a former pastor of College Church of Wheaton, Illinois that I read in one of my commentaries. He, he really, he really hit, hit the nail on the head right here in describing this. He said, The great historic doctrine of the church is that the Son of God became a real man. Not just someone who only appeared to be a man. When He was born... God the Son placed all of the exercise of all of his, of all of his all powerfulness, that's his omnipotence, and all and, and all presence, that's his omnipresence, and all knowingness, that's his omniscience. He says he placed all the exercise of these attributes under the direction of God the Father. He did not give up those attributes. He didn't cease to be God. But he submitted their exercise in his life to the Father's discretion. Though he was sinless, he had a real human body. Beloved, but he also had a real human mind and emotions. Complete, here it is, complete with their inherent weaknesses. So in his divine nature, beloved, we know that he knows all things. Amen. In His divine nature, He knows all things. Colossians 2.3 In Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So you and I know that. But not with respect to His human nature. He did not know all things in His human nature. Okay? And we, and we, we see glimpses of that in Scripture. I think one that we can obviously uh, remember, I, I think I heard... Uh, Frank mentioned it when he was preaching at the bus station. For example, there's, there's more than one, but, but this is one as an example. In his humanity, he did not know the day or hour of his second return. He did not know it. When he says, I did not know, he means he did not know. But then at other times in Scripture, he's given the privilege by his Father of exercising some of his attributes of deity. For example, when he, when he, when he performs miracles, when he causes a limb to grow, He's not doing that in His humanity. God the Father is, by the Father's discretion, allowing Him to exercise those attributes of His deity in His in different healings, in creating food out of nothing, in raising the dead, in calming the sea, and in knowing men's thoughts. He was receiving the, all of these, these again, these, the exercise of His attributes of deity from, at the Father's discretion. Okay? But in His humanity, beloved, He was man just like you and I, except without sin. And so I really, that was really helpful for me to understand. He had to grow. He had to grow in knowledge and all of these things because He, he really was and truly a man. And I'm thankful for verses like Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17, if you want to jot these down. Hebrews 4, verse 15. I'm going to kind of paraphrase these real quickly. But oh, before I do that, that one last phrase in verse 40, it says the grace of God was upon him. That's Obviously, that's not the saving grace of God like we think of grace. That's just God's favor. And Luke says it again down in verse 42. God's favor was upon him. Think of all the times the Father would say, my son with whom I am well pleased. The favor of the Father was upon him. But Hebrews 2 verse 17 and, and chapter 4 verse 15 Kind of, and it says this. I kind of paraphrased it. Some of it is word for word. Some of it is not. He had to be made like his brethren in all things. That's what we're seeing. Jesus had to be made like his brethren in all things to make propitiation for the sins of the people. He had to be like us. He had to be a true man. He was a true man like Adam. And He did what Adam could not do so to be the propitiation for our sins. He was not some kind of machine. He was a man with all of our weaknesses, tempted in all things as we are, as we are 
yet without sin, so He could be that perfect, spotless Lamb without blemish and be the sacrifice for God to appease His wrath. It matters. The writer of Hebrews is saying it matters. Not only can He be the payment for our sin, but He can sympathize with us in our weaknesses as our faithful high priest. Oh, church, I hope you can see how He can sympathize with you. He was really man. And that doesn't mean, ladies, that means He was really human. He can sympathize with you too, not just us males. He can sympathize with us as His people. When you're going through difficult times, when you're struggling, He can sympathize with you. Because He had those weaknesses like you and I, yet was without sin. So He can identify with us. That's the whole point. He can identify with us. As a man, He can take the wrath of God as the perfect man, the spotless one. And as we'll see later, as God, He can actually endure the wrath of God. But it matters that He was a man. It matters that He, he had these same weaknesses because He can truly sympathize with you and your weaknesses. So praise God. So we see He, he grew, guys, not only physically, but inwardly. He, there was growth in Him. Verses 41 through 47, secondly, we're going to see the boy's priority. The boy's priority. So this section here, now that we're starting here, guys, this is, this is roughly 12 years after being presented in the temple over in verses 21 through 24 that we looked at. So this is literally nearing, he's nearing adulthood, you could say. That's considered at the age of 13 in that culture. In verse 41, it says this, Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. <clears throat> verse 42, when he became 12, they went up there according to the custom of the feast. So all males were required to attend the temple three times a year. If you want to jot that down, I'm not going to read it just for sake of time. It's in Exodus chapter 23, verses 14 through 17. You can see that background information in the law that all males were required to attend the temple three times a year to the different feasts. It even, it even lists the feasts in verse 17 in Exodus 23. These feasts were given different names really throughout the Bible. They became known, they became known as the, the, the Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. And so the women weren't required, but the men were. But you can see in verse 41 that, that Mary and Joseph went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of the Passover. We see that this couple's a devout couple. These are godly parents. Again, this is part of God's remnant. And beloved, if you want a, if you want a, if you want a happy marriage, if you want a good happy marriage, serve the Lord together. That's what we see Mary and Joseph just doing it together. We see a godly, devout couple. Verse 42 says, When he became twelve, they went up there according to the custom of the feast. The custom of the feast. This probably wasn't Jesus' first time. The, the custom of the feast is, is that passage in Exodus. But this probably wasn't his first time. Uh, but this was important. This was a year before he was 13 years old, which later was to be marked by the ceremony of Bar Mitzvah. You guys have probably heard that name, Bar Mitzvah. Meaning, son of law. When they become accountable at the age of 13, uh, Jewish males, uh, that's the age they became accountable to the law, a full member of the synagogue. And so Jesus, at the age of 12, you could just imagine He was taking this in, being in Jerusalem. You know, as we try to just take in the setting. John MacArthur said the last... The last couple of uh, Passovers before a boy turned 13 were particularly important in preparing him for his responsibility to the law. And so again, he's a 12-year-old boy taking it all in, probably roughly 200,000 pilgrims in the streets of Jerusalem during this time. 100,000 sheep for sacrifices. But just think what a time it would have been. Feasting with friends and family. Singing psalms in the temple. Passover night. Worshiping with His family. You think about that, beloved. That the Son of God, as a boy here, 12 years old, worshiping with His family on Passover night. The Father, who is, who is Joseph, his, his legal father here on earth, 
would have prepared the sacrificial lamb. And just think, Jesus would have heard the story of the Passover. What is the Passover all about? Just think, the Son of God is hearing the story which all pointed to who? To Him. The Passover. The blood that would be applied to the doorpost in Egypt to protect. If, if the blood was applied, the angel of death would pass over and protect the life of that child. And it all pointed to Him. It all pointed to Christ and He's, he's hearing this. Well, it's just amazing. He's hearing this, which this because that's what the blood symbolizes, right? If we have the blood applied to our lives by faith in Christ, the angel of death will pass over. Death has no victory over those who've been under the blood of Jesus Christ. That's what all this was a picture of. The young man that I was talking to at the bus station that we were that we were talking about, and he, and he kept. He kept saying that Old Testament has nothing to do with the New, or the New has nothing to do with the Old. I said it has everything to do with the Old. I said the whole Old Testament is a picture of one person. It's a picture of Christ. Or it's pointing towards Christ. And I I thought of that Passover meal. Or that yeah, that Passover and what it represents. But Christ would have been they would have been they would have been remembering the salvation of God and his deliverance. From, from Pharaoh and Egypt and what it pointed to, the greater, the blood of Christ. And so it says in verse 43, they were, as they were returning, after spending a full number of days, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents and his parents were unaware of it. The full number of days, it just meant probably eight total days. There was one day for killing the sacrificial lamb and seven for the feast of unleavened bread, which really the, the entire event became known as the Passover but it says he stayed behind. In verse 44, his parents were unaware of it in verse 33 and verse 44, but they supposed him to be in the caravan and went a day's journey and began looking for him among their relatives and acquaintances. They, they traveled in a caravan. Family, friends, and community. They traveled together. This would, have, this would have had many benefits. Probably really good fellowship, protection from from thieves on the, on the roads and everything, but that's the way they would travel. Typically, the women and children would be in front in these big caravans. The men and the boys would be in the rear. So Jesus, being at the age of 12, could have been in, he could have been in either one. It's like, which group does he go in? And so probably what happened is each parent, Joseph thought he was with Mary, Mary thought he was with Joseph, and then they realized, oops, he's not here. You know, it reminded me, guys, for parents... Just a little word of wisdom. Because I think that's all that was going on. They weren't being negligent. It was just a miscommunication. But when my oldest son was young, he was one years old. He was sitting in Jamie's truck. Jamie had a uh, Dodge Ram. And so it was pretty high off the ground. And, and our oldest son was one years old. And his mother thought I was watching him. I thought she was watching him. And he fell out the door. The doors were open. He fell out the door and hit his head on the, on the step rail. Hit the ground. I thought, he, I thought it broke his neck and killed him. And... Uh, but that's what that reminded me of. It was, it wasn't. We weren't being negligent. I just thought she was watching. She thought I was watching. And I, anyway, I think that's what's going on here. Jesus was not disobeying. Um, he was not disobeying his parents. Nor was it. It wasn't a lack of concern or care on Joseph and Mary's part. It was just a. You could say it was. Part of being a human. The weakness. The miscommunication. They weren't omniscient. Just like I wasn't omniscient. I thought Tyler's mother was watching him, but, but she wasn't. So that's what's going on here, guys. Jesus had always been responsible as a child. Obedient, sensitive, thoughtful. Right? He was sinless. He was sinless. Man, have you ever thought about the fact that He was sinless as a child? You know, I don't mean to like envy or anything, but I bet that was pretty easy parenting. It was not. You think if, <laughs> there there would have been no with Jesus, there would have been no. Did you eat? Did you eat those cookies out of the cookie jar? And he's saying no while the crumbs were all over his lips, like we've all experienced as raised kids. No, Jesus was perfect. But what we have what we have going on here, guys, as we get into verse forty six, verse forty seven, there's a transition happening. We start seeing the priorities of this boy. 
of Jesus the boy. We start seeing his priorities, which is which is back to really point number two. In verse 45, when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem looking for him. Then after three days, the three days is probably them traveling away from Jerusalem. That's one day. They realized he wasn't there, traveling back. And then when they get there, they found him. Those are probably the three days. It says they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. The transition that's happening, guys, is from a responsibility to his to his earthly parents to the response or the to to his to his father. We're seeing that transition here in the text. They found him in the temple. It says. And so what we're beginning to see in the life of, of young Jesus at the age of 12 was His priority was His Father. His priority was His Father. He wasn't being disobedient to His parents, but there's a higher responsibility going on here, and it was to His Father. Even, this is really important to remember as a Christian, even above family. That's what we're seeing here. Even above family. You know, there's some people, guys... They cannot accept that. When you present the Gospel to them and you you present what Christ's own words. What are Christ's own words? Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. You know, there's some people that can't accept that. I've had people in my own family who have heard those words from Christ and said, I don't want to serve a God like that. And that keeps many people from coming to Christ. But we're to count the cost. That's what we're beginning to see in his life. His priorities are being made evident here. And so any true Christian should understand this. That if you're, come, if you're going to come to Christ, Christ, He says, you come to Me as Lord. And obviously, and I think what people don't understand because they don't understand the new birth. They don't understand that when you, when you surrender to Jesus Christ, He puts a greater love for your family and your heart. You become a better son, a better child, a better daughter. You're able to honor your father and your mother more. It's just that Christ is supreme. Right? It's just like we become better citizens. We become more obedient to our government. Except when our government says, hey, you need to disobey God. No, absolutely not. It's the same thing, it's the same thing with our family. No, we love our family. We want to honor our family. We want to love our, our wives and our husbands. But Christ is first. I hope you understand that Christ is first. That's, that's, that's a normal Christian. Christ being King and Lord. He is King and Lord, but that being a reality in our life. It says He was sitting in verse 46. Sitting in the midst of the teachers. Those have been the, the teachers of the day. The different rabbis, the different teachers. It says He was both listening to them and asking them questions. Jesus was the student here, guys. This is the only time we'll see it in the Scriptures that He is the student. Because from here on out, He will be the teacher of Israel. He is the teacher. He is the great teacher. But here, He's the student, guys. Again, this is in His humanity. He was not omniscient here. You realize that? He's not omniscient here. He's truly 12 years old. He's learning. He's asking questions. What we do see is he had a passion for Bible study. He had a passion for the Scriptures. He had to be there learning and growing. Beloved, that's part of being a normal Christian, by the way. Do you have a passion for the Scriptures? Is your love for God's Word growing in your life? He was a real, he was a real, a real boy, a real man, growing in these things. But you and I should be growing. We should be growing in our, in our knowledge of the Word of God. We should be growing in our desire and our hunger for the Word of God. Jesus said, it's, it's those who abide in My Word who are truly My disciples. But the question is, is how did He know so much at the age of 12? Because look what it says in verse 47. All who heard Him were amazed at His understanding and His answers. How did He know so much? This is really the mystery of the Incarnation. One of the mysteries. First of all, think of the Old Testament prophets. Beloved, there were times where they literally predicted the future, right? And it came to pass. Many of those prophecies have been fulfilled. Some of them 
yet to be fulfilled. But we can look in history. It happened just like they said it. That didn't happen. That didn't happen just in their humanity. No, it was revealed to them by the Father. In much the same sense, God would reveal things to His Son. R.C. Sproul says this. So that, that's just one way. I may have misspoke there, meaning because I don't want to like contradict myself. But that's really kind of back to our, our previous point we were looking at. You know, He's fully human, but there's times when God, through the Father's prerogative, allows Him to exercise some of the attributes of His deity. But in the temple, guys, I'm going to agree with R.C. Sproul here that he wasn't receiving divine knowledge in the temple. So the question is, if he wasn't, how did he know so much as a 12-year-old boy? And I think this is a very good principle we can see. And we can see it in our own Christian life. And I think it's what's going on here. One of the ways he was able to know so much, even in his humanity, he had such an understanding of the Scriptures. Because think about what sin does in your life and in mine. Think about what sin does. It darkens our minds. It darkens our understanding. It hardens our hearts. And and I'm talking about in the life of a real Christian. Jesus was sinless. He always had perfect fellowship with the Father. He didn't battle in any of this this darkness and this blindness that comes from sin. Now he had perfect fellowship with the Father. When you and I are living holy, obedient lives, our understanding of the Word of God will be greater. It just will. I know from experience. I see some heads nodding. If you're living in disobedience to God, the Word of God will be dull to you. Because you're living a lie. And obviously... That applies to the unregenerate. They have no understanding of the things of God. But even as Christians, when we allow sin and disobedience into our life, our understanding grows dull of the things of God. And so you think about Christ. He was sinless. He didn't have these things. Now, when we're walking with God, we're being obedient to God, you could say that we're in tune with God. We're in tune with the Spirit. We're being led by His Spirit. His Spirit is revealing truth to us. Because we have a heart that's open and tender. We're not living in hypocrisy and all these type of things. It's like a guitar being in tune, right? Think of Jesus. He was perfectly tuned. And the more you and I are walking in obedience to God, the more in tune we will be with God. The more in tune we will be with His Word. Because we will be walking in agreement with His Word. So we can see His growth. We can see His priority. It was the Father, right? You and I, as a man, we can, as, as people, as humans, we can understand growing. He can identify with us in our weaknesses just as being people and struggles. And then you and I should have these same priorities that Christ had and as being a Christian. Um, there comes a time when, when, well, I mean all times, the Father needs to be the most important thing in our life, even above family. And so when, when, when we put Christ, when we put God at the proper place in our life, everything else falls into place. All of our relationships and all of these things. So, third, let's look at the boy's identity in verses 48 through 50. The boy's identity in verses 48 through 50. In verse 48, guys, it says, when they saw him, when, the, when Mary and Joseph saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us this way? Behold, your father and I have been anxiously looking for you. There's not a whole lot to say about that verse, guys. These are just genuinely concerned parents who love their son. They thought they lost their son. They thought, what are you doing? You're going to make us have a heart attack. But in verse 49, guys, we see really his identity. He said to them, Why is it that you're looking for me? Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? Beloved, I want you to notice the contrast. In verse 49, Mary says, Your father and I. Speaking about Joseph, who is legally his father. What does Jesus say in verse or in verse 48? It says, Your father and I, we're looking for you. What does Jesus say in verse 49? My father. 
See the contrast here? Now he's speaking about who his, who his real father is, right? This is so big here, guys. We, and this is what I was explaining to a young man last night on the streets. He was asking this whole thing about Jesus being the Son of God. And how, that, and how did that mean He's God, you know? And um, so, but we have to understand what this meant in this day. For Jesus to call Him Father, <laughs> oh man, it was a claim to deity is what it was. Uh, but I'll get to that here in just a minute, guys. But this is a big thing. He, what we see immediately, Jesus at the age of 12, He is signifying that God is His Father. He has an understanding of that. It's very clear. And He says this, Did you not know? Speaking to Mary. Verse 49, Why is it that you were looking for Me? Did you not know that I had to be in My Father's house? And guys, if you think about it, Mary, at least on the surface, should have known. She should have thought back to her... Um, Visitation from the angel, chapter 1, verse 30 through 35. She was told this by Gabriel. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Mary said to the angel, How can this be since I am a virgin? Verse 35, The angel said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child will be called the Son of God. Mom! (laughs) Did you not know? Mary probably should have known. She knew she had been with a man. She has this baby visited by the angel. But he said, I had to be. I must be. In the NAS it says, didn't you know that? I had to be in my father's house. Your version may, may say I must be. I can't remember which some of the different English translations, but I had to be. I must be. It was necessary that I be in my father's house. You know, this phrase here, guys, it gives us... This phrase is used multiple times in, in Luke's Gospel. This, I must be. And, it, and it's an idea of he knew that he was doing the will of his father. Listen to Luke 4.43. You can jot these down. Luke 4.43. He says, I must preach to other cities. That's a beautiful verse. He said, I must go to these other cities and I must preach to them. That's why I came. Do you know that's why Jesus came? One of the reasons He came? Because He was a preacher. And you know He trained other men to be preachers. That's what He trained them to be. He didn't train them to be Sunday school teachers. He didn't train them to be motivational speakers. He trained them to be preachers. That's what He did with His disciples. And He didn't train them to go preach to groups of Christians. He trained them to preach to the world. That's what they did. He trained these men to be preachers. He said, but I must do this. I must preach to other cities. That's why I was sent. And obviously, we know that He was sent to to die on the cross. Luke 9.22 I must suffer many things and be rejected and killed and rise again. It's the same language. I must. It was necessary. Luke 13.33 I must journey on to Jerusalem where I will die. He knew that He was accomplishing the will of His Father. Luke 24 verse 7 Again, I must be delivered up, crucified, and rise again. And then Luke 24, verse 44, because of all these things, because all these things must be fulfilled, which are written about me in the law of Moses, prophets, and Psalms. Beloved, He had to be. He must be at the temple is what He's saying. That was His Father's dwelling place on earth. And He must be there. And He understood this. He came to do the will of His Father. And beloved, aren't you always glad or aren't you glad that he always did the will of his father? He always did the will of his father. So he could be our sinless sacrifice on the cross. No, he said it was the joy set before him that he would endure the cross, despising the shame, and now he is set down at the right hand of God. But this whole phrase, my father, he said, my father's house. No one had ever called God father like this before. And the Jews knew it. 
No one had ever called him God Father. The Jews recognized him to be Father as all as the Creator. Or the Father of Israel as a nation, but nobody had ever called God my Father like, like Jesus began to do. Now it's real important. What does it mean? What does it mean for Jesus when we see the phrase in Scripture, Jesus is the Son of God? He said that. That's how he identified himself with. And this is the, the question that the young man asked me last night. In Jewish culture, son, when we see the word son, it meant more than just a male offspring. When the, when the son is used, like it's used as Jesus being the Son of God, it's used differently. It has the meaning of being one with. Okay? Identification with. Or equal with. Equal in nature. That's what the Son of God means. That He is equal in nature. He is one with. He is identified with. He is equal with. He is equal in nature. The Son of God being the same. When that, when that phrase is used, He is saying, I have the same nature as God. And, the, and, and, and if it wasn't true, it was blasphemy. Okay, so here's some examples of how that word Son is used with this meaning that we can see in the Bible. Examples of son being used with this meaning of being one with or equal with or identified with. Barnabas, for example, is called the son of encouragement. He's the son of encouragement. Why? Because he is such an encourager that he is identified with encouragement. So he's called the son of encouragement. Judas is called the son of perdition. Antichrist is called the son of destruction. Why? Because they are... Their eternal destinies are so identified with hell that they are given these names. Son of perdition. Son of destruction. James and John, the sons of thunder. Unbelievers, what are they called in Ephesians chapter 2? Sons of disobedience. Do you see the meaning here? That's what Jesus is saying. I am one with the Father. That's what that phrase means. To say that He is the Son of God, it's not like we think. Like, he's just an, a physical offspring, you know? No, it's, it's identification with the same nature. Jesus was identifying himself with his Father as one with, equal with, equal in nature. And to claim the nature of God is to claim to be God. Every time it says Jesus is the Son of God, it is same, it's the same as saying God the Son. It is a reference to His deity. In John chapter 10, verse 30, Jesus said, I and the Father are one. In John 14, verse 9, He told Philip, He who has seen Me has seen the Father. And the Jews, beloved, they knew what He claimed when He, when he used that phrase, the Son of God. Turn over to John chapter 10 real quickly and I'll show you this. John chapter 10, you can see him using this phrase, the Son of God, they knew what it meant. In John chapter 10, we read, Shiloh read it earlier for us, but we'll read it again. In John 10, 31 through 36. 31 through 36. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I show you many good works from the Father, for which of them are you stoning me? The Jews answered him, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. And because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. Okay, stop there for just a minute. They're picking up stones to stone him because they're saying, You claim to be God, and you're just a man. Okay? Now verse 34, 35, I don't want you to get sidetracked here. Jesus, Jesus answered them, Has it not been written in your law? I said you are God's. He's quoting out of Psalm 82, verse 6 where that word can be used as the judges of the day. He's using a play on words, basically saying, you know what? You called your own, these judges in Israel, God's little g. That, that's his argument. And if they're to be called, if you could call them God's, why can't the Messiah be called? So that's, that's what that context is. But we're getting to verse 36. Jesus answered them, has it, not, has it not been written in your law? I said you are God's. If He called them God's, to whom the word of God came and the scripture cannot be broken, listen to verse 36. 
Do you say of Him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God. See, what Jesus said is I am the Son of God. And they equated that, you can see in verse 33, for blasphemy because you yourself, being a man, make yourself out to be God. You see the connection? He claimed to be the Son of God. They understood that's blasphemy. You're claiming to be God. So that's what this whole phrase of, when we see the Son of God in Scripture, beloved, it is a reference, it is a claim to deity. And he's even, he's even claiming it here in the temple of calling God His Father. He's already identifying with Himself with the Father. So we see what we're seeing here in the text. We're seeing pictures of His humanity. We're seeing pictures of His deity. And I really don't like quoting C.S. Lewis very often. But I do agree with one thing he said, that his claim to be Lord, his claim to be God, either Jesus was a liar, right? He was a liar, or he was a lunatic. I mean, somebody needs to be locked up, or he was Lord. And he claimed to be God. That's why they wanted to stone him. That's why they nailed him to a cross. His whole ministry was a claim to deity. And all of his works demonstrated that he was God. And so he says this, guys. He says this in verse, in verse 49. Why is it you are looking for me? Did you not know that I had to be in my Father's house? <sighs> Did you not know that I had to be in my Father's house? And he was about his Father's business. Because in certain, in certain translations, I think instead of house, it says about my father's business. So, but let's, let's talk about that phrase in a minute. And I think house is the, is the clear picture it's because it's a matter of where he was at. But about it, in his father's house, about his father's business, really doing the will of God. And so we can take a lot from that by way of application about being about our Father's business. Okay, we're Christians now. We have a different... We have a different... uh, A different pursuit in life. Everything revolves around the, the Father's will for our life. And we need to be about our Father's business. This should guide everything that we do. This should guide us in our conversations with people. Are we about our Father's business? We have been saved and left on earth. To be a witness for Him. With our mouth, with our very lives, with our actions, with our habits, with our time, with our money. Some people will say, you know what? It's none of God's business how I spend my time or my money. No, everything we do, guys, everything we do needs to be under this umbrella that that God is our Father. And He has saved us. And everything we do is His business. It should guard everything in our world. It should guard us when we're, when we're tempted to love the things of this world and, and, and fall after the things of this world. No, we're to be about our Father's business. Are we walking in His steps? Are we walking in Christ's steps? Obviously, we're not going to do it in perfection like He did. But we're going to have our eyes set on Christ. We're going to have our eyes set on the Father. And so this phrase, even this phrase about my father's business, it's a guardrail to protect us. It's a guardrail to to keep us focused on what? The main thing. That's really what we see Jesus all about is his father's business. He came to seek and save the lost. And he has sent us out into the world to be a witness, to proclaim that message. And so we need to watch everything we do, how we spend our time, how we spend our money. Are we supporting the things of God? Are we, are we, are we, are we spending it all on ourselves? Time, money, treasure, energy, talents. What do we think about? What, what do we think about when we, when we're, you know, when we're by ourselves? All of these things. Are we about our Father's business? And it says in verse fifty, they did not understand the statement which which he had made to them. You know, beloved, what that reveals to me, and we see it in the Scripture, that the truth being revealed to different people, sometimes little by little, 
they believed what, what had been revealed to them, but sometimes they didn't just have an, a greater, the greatest understanding of it. And so it's something that Ronnie shared with us, shared with you guys when, when Shiloh and I were gone, but I listened to it, that, you know what, we need to be patient with other believers. Not, not every one of us are on the same level. God, God, maybe He reveals truth to us at different rates sometimes. I'm talking about with brothers and sisters in Christ. We need to be patient. Man, you don't understand that? Now we need to be patient with one another. Amen? So let's move to our last point. The boy's identity. We've really seen that he is truly man, but he's also truly God. And lastly, we're going to see the boy's humility. The boy's humility in verses 51 and 52. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth, and he continued in subjection to them. And his mother treasured all these things in her heart. Verse 51. He, it says he was subject to them. He continued in subjection to them. What do, this whole last point we've been talking about how Christ is the Son of God. Right? He is God the Son. He is, he is fully God. He is deity. But yet, what does it say? He can, continued in subjection to them. He was the Son of God, but He was also the Son of Mary. What a picture of meekness, beloved. As the Son of God, but what we see being in subjection, not just to Mary, but to them, Mary and Joseph, He loved His parents. He loved His mother. He loved and obeyed her. That's what we see. Oh, beloved, you and I can learn from this. Do you ever think that you have maybe become too important, too big to honor your parents? Can I say, if you have ever thought that for one second, repent. We are called to honor our parents. Not even at the fact that they're honorable. We're called to honor our parents because they're our parents. Now sometimes that may be hard to do. But we're called to honor our parents. It's the fifth commandment. Obviously when when we're living under the authority, we're to obey them if they're not commanding us to sin and do evil. But we're to honor our parents. We're to honor our parents. Jamie was such an example of that um, with his dad when he was alive. He didn't have a good father at all. Not an earthly father. Not a good dad. But Jamie tried his best to honor him. Trish and I were witnesses of that. He tried his best to honor him. And so we're to honor our parents. It says his mother treasured these things. His mother treasured all these things in her heart. I mean, it's just every line in the Word of God is so important. We can just see... she. Even these things that she couldn't fully understand, it said she treasured these things. Well, what, a, what an example to you and I. And what do I mean by that? Listen to John chapter 2, verse 22. It says, So when He, Jesus, was raised from the dead, His disciples remembered that He said this, and they believed the Scripture and the Word which Jesus had spoken. Meaning, they didn't fully understand it at first. But God would eventually reveal it to them fully. It says Mary treasured these things. And so there's going to be times when we maybe we don't fully understand something in God's Word, but what's your attitude towards it? Do you still treasure it as God's Word? Many times that's the difference between a believer and a non-believer. Well, I don't understand it, so they, we harden our hearts against it. Man, as believers, it's the Word of God. Don't ever, don't ever harden your heart just because you can't fully understand it. This is God's Word. And we should approach it humbly. And we should treasure it. And then more than likely, God will reveal more truth to us in that particular area. And so we just see this, that she treasured these things. And then we're going to close in verse 52. Just again, this boy's humility. Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God. Amen. It's almost like verse 40 all over again. What we see here, guys, is Verse 40 and verse 52, we see the true humanity of Jesus. It's like bracketing the whole section and right there in verse 49, we're reminded of His, of his deity. That He's truly man. He's truly God. This is who He is. He was subject to the process, beloved, of normal human growth and development. It's like we talked about earlier. That's who He really was. Normal human growth development physically, spiritually, mentally, outwardly and inwardly is the easiest way to say it. It says He's grown in wisdom. 
The Son of God is growing in wisdom. He really was growing in wisdom. Because as a man, he needed this growth. Let me ask you this. Are you growing in wisdom? Are you growing in wisdom? What does that mean to grow in wisdom? It means to apply God's Word to your daily Apply God's Word to your daily life. It's not just learning the meaning of it, but are you applying it? That's wisdom. We're applying God's Word to our lives. You know the phrase, what, what would Jesus do? No, what did He do? One of the things He did, He trained preachers. <laughs> he preached. But He also grew in wisdom. You, should, you and I should be growing in wisdom. We should be growing in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We should be applying God's Word to our life. And in doing so, it says, He grew, He kept increasing in wisdom and in stature, meaning physically, and in favor with God and men. The natural effect of growing in wisdom, beloved, is that you will have favor with God and men. Because if you're growing in wisdom, it will lead you to obedience to God. And you'll grow in favor with God when you're obeying God. And when you're walking in the wisdom of God, you will be treating other human beings correctly. And so you'll grow in favor. You know, guys, we're supposed to be salt and light. We're supposed to be in the world, not of the world, but in the world, growing in favor with God and men. Not some creepy recluse that wants to go hide in a cave because we're so holy. That's not growing in favor with men. No, we're to be, we're to be in this world, right? With the aroma of Christ. And sometimes that's going to be aroma of death for some. But we're to be the aroma of Christ. And so, beloved, in closing, he was truly a man. We've seen that. Truly a man. He had to grow. But he was also truly God. And so the question I leave with you today. And obviously, if you can answer, if you answer no to this question, then I challenge you. If you can answer yes to this question then I encourage you to ask other people this question. Do you believe in Jesus? Right? Simple question. If they say yes, if you say yes, or if they say yes, I ask you, which one? Which Jesus? That's a good question to ask. Do you believe in Jesus? Most people say, oh yeah. Then just ask them which one. Let them start telling you about it. And then you'll know where to go. Is it the Jesus of the Gnostics? Right? The, one who, the ones who say, He didn't come in a real body. He was just spirit. Because matter is evil, and He couldn't have had a real body. And a matter of fact, as they taught, I told you guys a few weeks ago, that the Gnostics taught that the man who, who died on the cross, that was supposedly Jesus, wasn't really Him, but the real Jesus, Spirit form was sitting up on the hill laughing at the whole crucifixion. It's Gnostic teaching. So if you believe in that Jesus, sorry, He can't help you. He can't save you. That's not the Jesus of the Bible. What about the Jesus of the Jehovah's Witness? Who just say, well, He's just an angel. Just Michael the archangel. Sorry, that God or that Jesus won't save you. He's not God. He wasn't man. No, Jesus created the angels. That's not the Jesus of the Bible. Or the Jesus of the Mormons. He's the spirit brother of Lucifer. No, He created Lucifer. He's going to cast Lucifer into hell for all eternity. He's not the spirit brother of Lucifer. That, that Christ can't save you. What about, maybe, maybe they say, well, we believe like the Jesus of the Muslims that yeah, He was a man, but He didn't die on a cross. He had a body, but He didn't die on a cross. He was just a prophet, good man. Sorry, that's not the Jesus of the Bible. The Jesus of the Bible, He was the prophet. And yes, He did die on the cross. Because that's where our sins were atoned for. Who else but the devil would want you to believe that He didn't die on the cross? And that's the God of Islam. No, that's not the Jesus of the Bible. Or how about the God of the Hebrew Israelites? He's just an uh, angry black man with a white afro who's going to kill all the white people. That's not the Jesus of the Bible. But, but what's sad is people really believe these things and other Jesuses that they've invented in their own minds and none of these Jesuses will save. 
Only a Jesus who is truly God, who can truly identify with you in your weakness, who has truly obeyed God's law perfectly as a man, and as the God-man bore the wrath of God on the cross, and has truly risen from the dead, demonstrating that He is God and has victory over death, hell, and the grave, can save you. And that's what people need to know. And one last one. Or what about the Roman Catholic Jesus? You know, they even believe in the Trinity. And they say Jesus is God. But they really don't believe in the same Jesus as we do. They say Jesus is called down from heaven every time that they take that abominable thing called Mass and that an ungodly priest can call the Son of God out of heaven at His bidding and He becomes a that's the real body of Jesus in a wafer and they crucify Him all over again. Sorry, but that's not the Jesus of the Bible. The Jesus of the Bible sits at the Father's right hand right now and reigns over all creation. And it says He's coming back one time. Not millions and millions of times in the, through the Roman Catholic Mass. That's the Jesus of the Bible. The Jesus of the Roman Catholics can't say He's not a cracker or a wafer. He is God Almighty who will return once to judge the living and the dead. He is truly God and truly man. And it matters. He had to be the, sac- the second Adam fully man to reconcile us. He had to be fully God. He had to be fully man to live the perfect life so that He could redeem us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us on the cross so that He could reconcile us. I mean, He's the God-man. He can reconcile sinful men and holy God because He is the God-man. That's who He is. And He conquered death, hell, and the grave He endured the wrath of God fully. And now He commands all men everywhere to repent. And that's what we are to tell people, beloved. When somebody says, I believe in Jesus, ask questions. Because there's a good chance they don't believe in the Jesus of the Bible. Amen? Jesus Christ is truly God and truly man. And He came to save sinners. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You, Lord, for for sending Your Son into this world who was the God-man. God, we thank You that He was man like us. We thank You that He did what we could never do. He did what Adam did not do. He obeyed You perfectly. And Father, we thank You that He was indeed God. That He could conquer death. That death could not hold Him down. That He defeated the grave that He was able to endure the wrath of God, something no man could do. And we just praise You for Him. We praise You for Christ. We thank You for Him. Father, I pray that You would make us bold witnesses for You. God, for Your namesake. Lord, use our church. Father, I pray that any who would be here or who would hear this message who has not trusted in the Christ of the Bible, Lord, much like in my conversion, I did not understand that He was God until You opened my eyes. So Father, we pray that You would open eyes of the blind to reveal who Christ is, to to convict of sin, righteousness, and judgment, and to convert and save to the uttermost. Lord, we love You and we praise You. In Christ's name, Amen.